and welcome to Didian Hawthorne and the In-Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. We are doing a late night recording session. I thought I might as well get myself a glass of water, a cup of tea, and start recording our last episode in our Edgar Allan Poe mini-series. We're doing the three short stories of his that are in sequence and really catalyze the beginning of the detective short story or detective fiction genre. What I love about this series is that we have been able to do some pretty interesting work within these different short stories and the short stories themselves aren't long. The second short story we read was the longest of the three of them, the one on Marie Roger. Uh, this one, The Purloined Letter, is the shortest. It's just about 20 pages. I've done a link in the show notes at relevanceofliterature.com for us. It is a great link because throughout it there are little hyperlinks and if you click on them they will put a little pop-up explaining what that word is in French or what that particular word might mean in this context or just little commentaries from the author of the blog which I find to be really extraordinary in the way that they've done these little commentaries. So I've linked that in the description. I will be referencing that resource throughout the episode today. Uh, It's poststories.com and the particular story of course that we're reading is The Purloined Letter by Edgar Allan Poe. This one honestly was the one I was most excited about uh, out of all three of them just from the title. I knew nothing about any of these stories before I started by the way and that's part of the discovery of miniseries like this is when they come up you realize this is something, there's a lot here. And so, yeah, I was most anticipating this story. Uh, Like I said, it's the shortest of the three, so I was interested in what Poe was going to fit in in these 20 or so pages uh, compared to what he was able to do in the 40 and 50 pages that the other stories were. So I came in with quite a bit of expectation from the other two stories and quite a bit of curiosity and there are a couple ways in which Poe definitely did himself well and there's a couple ways in which I felt like my expectations were let down but we'll talk about that all in due time. So first of all I want to start with the definition of purloined I'm using the poststories.com definition, again, scrolling down to uh, through the story and then looking at purloined. Uh, It says, quote, to take something wrongfully and often by a breach of trust. It is about the same as stealing, but not exactly. This is a really interesting definition of purloined. uh, And I think it does get at the root of it, which is that it's something sort of... (laughs) taken but in a way that thwarts the person that the thing is taken from so the queen or the royalty in this story is thwarted by means of having this letter taken from her um, from this particular 
minister. And that is the running definition, really the running symbol throughout this whole story. And we'll definitely talk about theme and symbol as we go through here. Uh, but the running symbol is this purloined letter, this object that is completely symbolic of things like trust and power uh, and this object of great envy almost and great power in terms of what the letter can accomplish if it's in your hands. So starting off this story, it's a really interesting mood and it's a mood that's quite different from the other two stories throughout at the beginning. Uh, so we have these two characters that are extremely central to all three of these stories. Dupont, the uh, detective, so to speak, in these stories. Uh, this man who just has these extraordinary powers of intuition and analysis. And then his friend, who's the narrator, who I've likened to Poe this whole time. And that's due to the narration style, that's due to the vague, the vagueness of this character. There's really not much there to fill him up. Uh, and that's another reason why I anticipate that it could just be Poe in disguise. <laughs> and so um, what I find is really cool about the interactions between these two characters is that Poe is not giving himself necessarily in this story the power of detection. Uh, he's really projecting it onto Dupont and in the last story we saw Poe was trying to solve this murder that was going alongside so really the whole story was just a a superimposed image of what was going on in New York, uh, just set in Paris with some fictional names, some fictional circumstances that were really not fictional. <laughs> but there in that story, Poe was really filling up Dupont with his own thoughts and using the narrator as a conduit through which to express those thoughts in a story. Uh, and in that way, I think the narrator is quite close to Poe, even though Dupont is this like very central figure that may or may not, in some estimations, carry the actual information that Poe is trying to reveal, either about himself or about his thoughts or things that he's processing, as is in the last story. So the relationship between these two characters and Poe and how Poe embodies himself through these two characters is really mediated by, I would say, not only the circumstances in question, so the actual plot of the short stories, but also by how direct Poe wants to be in saying, this is what I think, uh, as in the last story. Dupont walks us through exactly what's going on, as Poe probably wanted to in many cases, and um, whereas this story, a lot of it is quite secondhand, and so Poe is saying things a little bit less forcefully, and that mirrors the first story in a way, The Murders on Rue Morgue, because 
In the beginning, there's this very abstract passage about what intuition is and what different kinds of analysis afford us, for example, in a chess game versus in a game of cards. And what Poe's doing there is he's saying a lot and he's putting a lot through this narrator. This narrator really is <laughs> beefing up um, information that Poe is going to make very useful in, in the remaining parts of the story and indeed throughout this little trilogy here. And it's that's different than what Poe does through DuPont, which is very overt and the ways in which those two strategies, narrating through the narrator and narrating through DuPont, are effective are different in a really interesting way because we have this thing that you have to sort of parse out at the beginning of the trilogy with all of these complex sentences and the antiquated style and this high, it's a very high style that Poe's taking on there in the beginning. So there's lots to piece through and think through. Dupont often speaks like that, but in the cases where he's narrating, for example, in the second story, Poe's thoughts, it is more direct and you don't have as much to piece through, at least in my experience of reading them. And it's transparent in a way that you don't really have to work for as much as with these other narrated sections. So at the beginning of this particular short story, The Purloined Letter, we have this really funny mood and funny strange, not funny haha. <laughs> so we've got this really funny strange mood at the beginning in this book closet is what I called it in my notes. And like the second story, it becomes very clear very early on that this is a sequel to the other tales and the narrator does this by calling upon and placing us in a particular time in relation to the other stories in question. Now I should mention that the introduction to this story is quite a bit shorter than the others and this may be because the short story as a whole is quite a bit shorter and that's where Poe naturally would have wanted to cut just because there's not as much to prelude in this particular story. There's not as much setup, for example. The last story had a very long, very drawn out setup because Poe was uh, creating this superimposed image, as I said earlier. He had to use a lot of details that were picked and really grown from the actual events taking place. So there's lots more uh, involvement there, if you will, whereas this is a rather simple affair and that's what's made clear at the beginning. We have this prefect, his name is G, <laughs> and he arrives. Um, this is the person who's sort of the representative of the police throughout the trilogy and he's made over and over again to be an incompetent person and not incompetent in terms of he can't do his job physically well. <laughs> More so, he's incompetent in the sense that he doesn't have this intuition, he doesn't have these powers of commandment of analysis that Dupont has, um, which is why he needs Dupont's help constantly. So. This prefect, he's very good at carrying out searches and doing a crime scene evaluation and interviewing people and 
um, understanding sort of the details of the case and what is at stake, all of these things, especially the communication with people is what strikes me as his strength. And he takes all of this evidence to Dupont for him to analyze. So the analysis is really where the prefect is lacking. We know that in our timestamp, it has been several years since the last affair of Marie Gouverger. And the story here simply is that there is a letter with sensitive contents that has been purloined from the royal apartment by this minister. And the reason why they know that the minister is the one that has the letter currently is because the minister took the letter in plain sight. So essentially he was visiting the royal apartment, saw the letter on the table and exchanged it with another letter, but very boldly, very plainly. And the royal individual in question was not able to say, hey, that's my letter because of the sensitive information contained in the letter. They didn't want to have any of that information, I presume, questioned, for example. Uh, they didn't want to have to discuss the contents of the letter, perhaps. So that awkward scenario that the minister created, yeah, he recognized who the letter was from. He thought this is going to be good. He took the letter and he used it essentially as blackmail over this royal authority in order to have heavier weight and pass his way in his occupations. The stakes for the prefect, the visiting prefect are, there is a huge reward that this royal member is offering the police or whomever can solve this crime and deliver the letter back to them, back to its rightful owner. And the prefect has done an extremely thorough search of the minister's apartment, of course, in search of this letter. So he's coming to Dupont as a last resort because he cannot find this letter. He has searched everywhere. He searched the table legs. He searched the chair legs. He searched on the floorboards. All of the places that the minister could be cunning enough to hide the letter, he has searched and with great expense, it seems like, and great caution as well, without the minister's knowledge, though of course the minister is clever enough that he knows the Paris police are going to search his apartment. But in any case, here's a quote from page 294. At the top, I have the Barnes & Noble Classics edition of Poe's short stories. And this is about the perpetrator. It is clearly inferred, replied the prefect, from the nature of the document and from the non-appearance of certain results which would at once arise from its passing out of the robber's possession, that is to say, from his employing it as he must design in the end to employ it. Be a little more explicit, I said. Well, I may venture so far as to say that the paper gives its holder a certain power in a certain quarter where such power is immensely valuable. The prefect was fond of the Kant diplomacy. Still, I do not quite understand, replied Dupont. No, 
Well, the disclosure of the document to a third person, who shall be nameless, would bring in question the honor of a personage of most exalted station, and this fact gives the holder of the document an ascendancy over the illustrious personage whose honor and peace are so jeopardized. But this ascendancy, I interposed, would depend on the robber's knowledge of the loser's knowledge of the robber. Who would dare? The thief, said G, is the minister D, who dares all things, those unbecoming as well as those becoming a man. Unquote. That was again from page 294 in this uh, Poe Classic Stories edition from Barnes & Noble Classics. What I love about this discourse is it is so bizarre and we get so much communication and so much upfront communication with this prefect, which we, we have interacted with before, but not to this capacity. And we really do see the piecing together and the interaction of the narrator here with the prefect and him interjecting and saying, wait a second, but... <laughs> in a really convoluted way, I might add, um, wait a second, but the person who was robbed must have known who the robber was. They must have had direct knowledge of this robber in order to be so certain of this particular affair. And, you know, the prefect, they go back and forth, and I really like this kind of dialogue. It makes the pacing quite a bit quicker, quite a bit more... Uh, distinctive, I would say, compared to the other stories. The other stories are quite a bit of dialogue as well. Um, the dialogue can be dense at times, especially in the second story. Um, in the first story, there's all of those newspaper clippings, and they are dialogue-esque. <laughs> They're not as dialogue-heavy as, for example, the second story, when we have most of the narration coming from Dupont, recounted by the narrator. A lot, a lot of these frame narrations that are taking place around this time. Dracula, or excuse me, Frankenstein by Mary Shelley is one such frame narration. Wuthering Heights is another frame narration. These things are, these events are being recounted by someone, and that's the narrator in this case. So sometimes I do imagine these stories as having a particular outer frame and there's something that has reminded the narrator particularly of these events or uh, has otherwise entreated the narrator to recount these stories of Dupont and his time with Dupont as the detective in this case um, and I like that view of things. I like placing this as a proto-Victorian area frame narration where Poe is really experimenting not only with styles of the time period, I think of The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, that's another great frame narration. Um, he is working with the organizational framework of just classic texts of this period, along with this extremely avant-garde, extremely innovative style of this detective novel, uh, or detective short story rather, and I find it overall to be quite enthralling and quite quite effective over the course of these three different short stories, and I think 
that they definitely do stand on their own in terms of if I have a favorite, if I'm allowed to choose one, I would choose the first short story. I think the first story really sits on its own rather well, whereas the second two need help from the others before them uh, to pass muster in terms of understanding what is going on and what's going on with Dupont and who the narrator is and who the pre prefect is and all of these things. So I think that the layering and this building of context in this really this saga that he Poe is writing is pretty ingenious and I have really appreciated that complexity as we've gone on and the layers and layers of not only the stories, the different events, but the layers of character, the development, especially with Dupont and the narrator and the prefect that we've seen throughout the three. So in terms of symbols, we're getting into the discussion here a little more. Definitely smoke is a big symbol in this first part um, and smoke in terms of actual physical smoke coming from Dupont's pipe, but also just sort of this idea of a smoke screen. They are sitting quite literally in darkness in this story, and that's part of what makes the introduction of it so strange, is they are really sitting, they're musing, they're smoking in this little closet of a room and the light is off and then the prefect is, uh, comes and they don't turn the light on, <laughs> they keep it intentionally off and so um, they are quite literally shrouded in darkness and it really adds this air of mystery to Dupont and how he processes things and a lot to the characterization of Dupont, how we envision him when he's hearing these circumstances for the first time and parsing things out and taking things into consideration. So this smoke is really a symbol for the mystery of this character and smoke, darkness, there's a lot there in terms of the symbolic nature of how uh, Poe wants to represent this character as being uh, someone in the previous stories who had a very almost obvious logic that he employed, but yet in this particular narrative in this particular sh story or plot where the crime is so simple. Poe takes pains to make Dupont mysterious and so there's this juxtaposition of the problem at hand and how easy Dupont thinks these complicated problems are versus the simplicity of this problem and the mysterious complexity of Dupont. And that's such a wonderful thing that Poe is building in at the beginning here. I presume you looked to the mirrors between the boards and the plates and you probed the beds and the bedclothes as well as the curtains and the carpets. That of course, when we had absolutely completed every particle of the furniture in this way, then we examined the house itself. We divided its entire surface into compartments, which we numbered so that none might be missed. Then we scrutinized each individual square inch throughout the premises, including the two houses immediately adjoining, with the microscope as before. 
The two houses adjoining, I exclaimed. You must have had a great deal of trouble. We had, but the reward offered is prodigious. You include the grounds about the houses? All the grounds are paved with brick. They gave us comparatively little trouble. We examined the moss between the bricks and found it undisturbed. That's a quote from page 298 of this edition of the story. One question that I had, so that passage is really outlining the details of the search. We're getting into the meat of the story here now, the middle of it, that is. And one question that I honestly had is, could the minister not have moved the letter from place to place each time, right? Yeah, and there is the question, of course, of, okay, did the minister have the letter on his person? No, he didn't because the Paris police searched his person as well. But genuinely, I don't think it would have been too hard for him to guess that, hey, the Paris police are going to search my apartment. I'm sure they knew they were going to body, I'm sure he knew that they were going to body search him as well. So that's why he didn't carry the letter on his person, even though it's incredibly important to whatever designs he has with this power scheme and this blackmailing. But honestly, couldn't he have seen from the potential disarray of his house which area they had searched the previous night and then therefore move the letter into that area and then the next night move it into the area they've just searched? A genuine question here and I want you guys to respond to it. If you've read this short story, let me know what your thoughts are. Did you think the same thing? Am I totally out of bounds here? I want to know your points. You can comment actually on the document for the show notes for this episode, which is at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes. One thing that also really irked me as I was reading this short story is on page 299, Poe omits the description that the prefect gives of the letter. And my question was, why? What is the effect of this? Um, aside from the residual annoyance, <laughs> and for me, what's interesting is Poe is keeping us so much off of the actual story and off of the actual plot that we have to focus on the characters in the story. Whereas, especially the last story that we read, the Marie Roger uh, story, we had to focus on the plot because there were so many moving parts. It was ultimately about, as we discovered, Poe's trying to figure out this real-life mystery and putting a guise on top of this particular event uh, in terms of his fiction. So um, it, the effect, I suppose I answered my own question, the effect is that it gets us out of the plot in a very overt in a very specific way, I would say, and we are forced back on the characters and back to this dialogue. Um, there's really not much room in this part of the story in the middle here where we're looking particularly um, at the details of the story. There's not much room to start to go off and imagine the minister's apartment or other details about the letter or about the royal personage involved and really we are focused the entire time on the conversational participants and on the conversation itself 
the kinds of ways in which these people are talking, um, the diction and the words that they end up using, the constructions they end up using, and that is fascinating to me how Poe is prioritizing his use of characterization and his use of dialogue so much in this third story as opposed to the ones from earlier. So in the middle here, there's a little prelude and a month passes where the prefect leaves and Dupont suggests, okay, I want you to search the premises one more time. And so the prefect says, okay, I will do the same search again. I will not leave a single rock unturned. And of course, the prefect comes back after a month and he says, I've done the search again. I haven't found a single thing. And Dupont says, look, prefect G, if you write me a check for 50,000 francs, I suppose it was back then, um, I will procure the letter for you. And the minister, you know, is in, a, in an odd humor and he's going, well, well, yeah, he's blundering a little bit. Um, and he finally does it and Dupont gives the prefect the letter and he's able to produce the letter as the, basically from under the prefect's nose as he is searching the apartment at night when the minister is not there. So the point here really is, and similar to the other stories too, the critique is that, um, or the overt critique I should say first, is that the Paris police are good when the criminal is the mass of society, the typical criminal, so to speak. Whereas when the criminal is an individual, the Paris police start to falter and in this particular case, what Dupont ends up doing, spoiler alert, is he knows this minister by character and he knows um, him in a personal way in which he ends up exploiting later on. Um, but he knows that this minister is a mathematician and he's a poet and there's sort of a characterization of the kinds of logics and reasonings that this minister would use with regard to hiding the letter that Dupont ends up accessing in a really astute manner and those kinds of evaluations Dupont argues or this story argues are not either not available to the police or not readily looked at by the police in these kinds of searches in these kinds of arenas and these kinds of crime exactly because of the aforementioned generalization that the masses are easier for the Paris police to target than individuals. So how Dupont solves this mystery? I uh, love this particular part of the story because it is so it's just so satisfying to read Dupont's evaluation of how he was able to procure the letter on the spot as the uh, prefect comes to visit him after his extended search. Here's a quote for you from page 306 of the story. The material world, continued Dupont, 
abounds with very strict analogies to the immaterial. And thus, some color of truth has been given to the rhetorical dogma that metaphor or simile may be made to strengthen an argument as well as to embellish a description. The principle of the vis inertia, for example, seems to be identical in physics and metaphysics. It is not more true in the former, the large body is with more difficulty set in motion than a smaller one, and that its subsequent momentum is commensurate with its difficulty than it is in the latter, that intellects of the vaster capacity, while more forcible, more constant, and more eventful in their movements than those of inferior grade, are yet the less readily moved, and more embarrassed, and full of hesitation in the first few steps of their progress. Again, have you ever noticed which of the street signs over the shop doors are the most attractive of attention? I have never given the matter a thought, I said. There's a game of puzzles, he resumed, which is played upon a map. One party playing requires another to find a given word, the name of a town, river, state, or empire, any word in short upon the motley and perplexed surface of the chart. A novice in the game generally seeks to embarrass his opponents by giving them the most minutely lettered names, but the adept selects such words as stretch in large characters from one end of the chart to the other. These, like the over-largely lettered signs and placards of the street, escape observation by dint of being excessively obvious. And here the physical oversight is precisely analogous with the moral inapprehension by which the intellect suffers to pass unnoticed these considerations which are too obtrusively and too palpably self-evident." Unquote. That was page 306 and 307 again, a rather extended quote but a very important one for the interesting way in which Dupin ends up approaching this story and it's so roundabout and he often does go in this direction and that before commenting with any substance on how he's able to solve these stories but he gives a couple of different just stories or recounts a couple of different uh, allegories before he starts to go on with how he solves the mystery and so much of the charm of these three short stories that we've read lies in how they're written and the organization, but not only that, the way that the, for example, there is untranslated French and untranslated Italian. I think that's not necessarily a strength of the edition I'm reading from. <laughs> it's, you know, maybe there shouldn't be untranslated material um, in certain editions, but I do think that adds to the characteristics of authenticity for this story. In the time that Poe was writing, the particular parts of this that are untranslated, Latin for example, they would have been readable to Poe's audience and that's a really stunning thought in particular and it reminds me quite a bit of the Montalbano detective stories. So how does Dupont solve this mystery? He 
goes over to the minister's house for a conversation and while he's conversing and keeping the minister preoccupied he's looking around he's constantly moving and he's really engaged in the conversation or so one thinks and he's really looking he's scouring the main most obvious areas of the apartment for anything that could be the letter even if it doesn't look like it there are letters scattered on the table and he rejects those immediately he's like no those do not match the description i'm looking for and then he goes over to the mantel and he sees this little letter cubby and it's in a little bit of a disarray it has sort of normal correspondences nothing of particular interest until he sees a document, a letter in fact, that has markings on it that are opposite, complete opposite of what he's looking for in this particular letter. For example, he's looking for a feminine hand, it's a bold hand. There is a small seal on it, and this one has a quite large seal. And Dupont realizes this is actually the letter that I'm looking for. It's just been altered a little bit on the other side. So it's been sort of turned inside out and altered. He leaves a decoy something at the minister's house so that he has pretense to go back the next day. And he comes back the next day with a facsimile of the exact letter um, that he has seen, so he actually goes home and does some arts and crafts and makes a copy of the letter, and he, he is pretty inventive. It's, it's quite charming, the kinds of uh, tactics he describes in the short story. I quite liked that part. Um, and he replaces the letter while the minister gets distracted by some fool in the street with a, I believe, a musket making some havoc and the person with the musket of course is a hired man from Dupont himself and he is able to switch out the letter and the most ingenious part of this is that the minister of course does not know that he does not have the letter in his possession anymore so he acts as if he is still he still holds the power to be able to blackmail this official or this royal person and he indeed does not and Dupont in that facsimile has written uh, essentially lines for revenge is how I read it uh, there's some uh, argument perhaps or disagreement in the past between these two men and uh, Dupont has taken pains to make it very obvious that it was him uh, getting the minister back for this uh, earlier deed that is the reason why Dupont has taken the letter. Alright, I have some final thoughts for you to share about all three of these short stories and these introductions really to the detective fiction genre as i've been saying the whole time i have found this these stories to be fascinating i found them to be engrossing i would highly recommend them if you haven't read them this blog that i've linked in the show notes has all of them and they're annotated so that's more than i had when i was reading <laughs> um 
I would, again, highly recommend them. They're not long, uh, most of them. The second one is quite, is a bit longer than the others, but um, I found them to be stunning. They were fascinating and stunning. And in terms of the amount that I learned, not only about Poe's writing and about Poe's history as a writer, the kinds of areas and uh, styles in which he innovated in, I learned so much about early American literature, particularly with Poe, particularly with Poe's prose and narrative style in reading these short stories, and it's been such a pleasure to walk through them with you all. I hope you enjoyed this mini-series as well. If you want me to bring back more Poe, I'm always ready <laughs> to bring back more Poe. Uh, just give me a holler down in the comments, relevanceofliterature.com slash notes. All right, y'all, that's all for this episode and indeed for this mini-series. Thank you for your time and for your attention. I really appreciate it, and I will see you next week. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.